Let me uh, let me pray for us, and we'll we'll jump in. Father, we pause before you now and thank you again for the opportunity to be together this morning. Lord, we uh, come from many places this morning. Uh, our hearts are in many different places, many dispositions, many different emotions. Um, we pray that uh, you would be with us in the midst of all those things now, and that you would uh, calm our hearts, you would focus our hearts, and that you would draw our hearts to you, and that we would uh, worship you and know you more this morning. We pray that you would send your spirit to bless our time, and that your spirit would be our teacher, that your spirit would work with your word now to change us and transform us, and more and more remake the image of God in us. We ask that you would transform us um, into the image of Jesus this morning, even as we discuss that topic. We are completely dependent upon you to do this, and so we we plead with you and ask that you would do that now, and that it would be for your glory, and for the honor of your name, and for the advancement of your kingdom in this world, and we pray it for um, for your sake. Amen. Okay, um, yeah, handouts there as usual. The uh, just a quick review of where we were last week, we introduced the general topic of spiritual formation. Remember, we talked about the obstacles, the challenges, the problems, what we call them, just to have four P's, if you remember that, uh, to that we that arise when we start talking about growth in the Christian life. And so we went from those problems to then talking about the process of spiritual growth. The way that the Bible describes growth in the Christian life, what that looks like. And then we moved on to the practices of the Christian life, practices of spiritual formation. Uh, And and we talked really about how these were ways that we could give ourselves to the work of God's spirit in our lives. Um, Ways to sort of get in the way of God's work, of his transforming work. But we also emphasize with that quote from uh, Dallas Willard that grace is opposed to earning, not effort. So important distinction there, that grace is opposed to earning, not effort. So there is a place for us to work diligently where Paul says he beats his body, where he says in Philippians 2 that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because or for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good purpose. So we looked at those practices and how we need to be intentional with them. And then uh, and then this week, what we're going to do is jump in on uh, on this first spiritual practice, and it's that of corporate worship. And uh, this is I mean, I really think this is the center or the hub of spiritual formation for us. Corporate worship, what we'll do at 10 a.m. this morning. So, um, and we even saw in some of the purposes last week that, that worship of God is the end or purpose of all the disciplines. We could even say this is what we were created to do as a community of people worshiping God in this way. And that's, of course, the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism question number one. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of humanity? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to worship him exalt in him and enjoy him. So that's where we're going to go this morning is to talk about worship, corporate worship specifically, gathered corporate worship, because there is a sense in which we can talk about worship in the whole of our lives and everything we do. What we'll look at, though, this morning is gathered worship, Sunday morning worship. 
Okay, so a question here to get us going. If you were to walk up to someone on the street and ask them, what do you desire more than anything else? How might they answer? What do you want more than anything else? More money, yeah, definitely. Happiness. Happiness. If you go to campus, I think some of them might say for the basketball team to be good. Yeah, that's, yes. <laughs> for a resurrection of TCU's basketball program, yes. Peace. Peace, yeah. What else? More time. Gosh, that's a good one. Yeah. Health. Health. Yeah. Okay, what, what I'd like for us to do this morning is to, right now, think of how you might answer that question. I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud. Think about how you would answer that question, uh, being as honest as you can. Um, that, that, that if there are a way for you to articulate your most fundamental desire, what you want most, and to think about that, hold on to that as we now talk through some of these points regarding corporate worship. Here's the basic theme for this morning that I want us to see is that God actually reorders our loves or reorders our desires by his spirit through corporate worship. That's where we're going this morning. These three headings will be important because we're going to continue to come back to them. That of a story, the story of our lives and the story of the world. Uh, that of a vision of the good life and then the set of practices. So we're going to continue to come back to these three things and I'll explain um, as they arise why they're significant for us. So the first point is really a review from last week, but something that we'll continue to revisit because I think this is crucial. And it comes to this question of who are we most fundamentally as humans created in the image of God. And what we said last week is that we are desiring, worshiping, loving creatures. That that's, that's how we can describe what it means to be human. And that, that truth, that we are worshiping creatures, impacts spiritual formation in hugely significant ways. Um, quote that we looked at last week and that we'll continue to come back to this week. So many quotes from this book. Um, this is Desiring the Kingdom by Jamie Smith. Great, great book. Uh, if this is of interest to you, I'd really recommend this book. Some of it's pretty heavy going, um, but it's worth it, though. So uh, Desiring the Kingdom by Jamie Smith. This is a quote from the near the beginning of the book that is his basic thesis. We are ultimately liturgical animals because we are fundamentally desiring creatures. We are what we love. And our love is shaped, primed, and aimed by liturgical practices that take hold of our gut and aim our heart to certain ends. So he's saying we are what we love, that we aren't primarily intellectual, rational beings, right? Um, we, we, aren't, uh, we aren't less than that, but we are more than that. We don't move through the world as those who are purely and consistently rational in, in the way that we live, right? We know certain things we should do. That doesn't mean we do them. What we end up doing in the end is what we desire most. And so the way he describes it, I don't know if it's in this book or maybe in a lecture he gave, um, that we, we sometimes view ourselves as bobbleheads, as if, you know what a bobblehead is, the little thing you get, where you have the huge head on top as if the thinking, the, the, the intellect 
is the most primary and fundamental thing about a human being and that we're purely rational in that way. And so he'd say, no, well, what matters most is the heart. What matters most is our desiring and our loving, and that dictates how we move through the world. We looked at some biblical examples of this last week, Genesis 1. Uh, we looked at the primacy of the heart in Proverbs 4. And then we looked at the, the image that Jesus gives in Luke 6 of a, a tree being known by its fruit and that connection between the fruit and the root. Uh, and then we also looked at Romans 1 and what happens when these desires are disordered. I wanted to kind of broaden that out just a bit for us this week and build on it by giving some more biblical examples there. We won't read all of these, but I want you just to notice the way the scriptures talk about desire so often. So I have a couple Psalms there. One is Psalm 42. Um, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul, so pants my soul for you. My soul thirsts for God. And then in Psalm 63, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. And then in verse five, speaking of the satisfaction of these desires, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. So this talk of of a desire for God and a desire for that uh, that uh, hunger, that thirst to be satiated and then satisfaction of desire in the fullness of the kingdom. These are some great passages from the prophets that talk about what the end of all things will be, what things will look like when God is reigning as king and the world is as it should be. And the overall theme, we'll just look at Isaiah 25 there, is one of a banquet or of a feast, something where you, you think of your sat, the satisfaction of your desires in the, in the richest of ways. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. So much language regarding the satisfaction of our desire. And then Jesus also appeals to our desires. I didn't put these other passages on here, but it's really interesting that there are a number of times recorded in the Gospels where he asks, what do you want me to do for you? He asks, what do you want? Do you want to be healed? These questions that get at desire uh, very frequently and then some some kind of uh, really big, great pictures of that both come in John here. John four with the woman at the well, where he says to this woman that everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then a couple chapters later, Jesus makes these incredible statements about him being the bread of life. John 6. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So again, this picture of Jesus appealing to our desires and then satisfying, promising to satisfy these desires. Okay? So just another quick statement is just to say that desire itself is not a bad thing. Okay? Your desires are not bad in and of themselves. We were created as desiring, worshiping creatures. We are always going to worship or desire or love something. We can't not do that. Okay? Where things can go wrong is when our, or where our desires or our loves are disordered in some way. Okay? That desire itself, though, is not inherently bad. This is the point of Romans 1. Worship the creature rather than the creator. So that's how our desires can go wrong in that way. But just to reemphasize again that we are desiring, loving creatures. Okay, 
Because of that, given that we are desiring, loving, worshiping creatures, that's going to shape the way we make our way in the world. Okay? And here's the way we're going to say this. I know this is kind of cumbersome language, but this is why I have it up on the board here and we'll walk through it together. We participate in cultural liturgies that aim, shape, and train our loves through a set of embodied practices. Now, that might sound a little fancy. Uh, we'll talk about it, though. Okay, so here's, here's what I mean by this. And again, for more information on this, to read more on it, Jamie Smith's book is, is the place where most of this is coming from. Um, first, just this, defining the word liturgy right there. When we hear liturgy, we probably think of high church worship, right? Like organs, responsive readings, and robes or something like that. Um, what I mean here by liturgy is just most basically, and this is actually what the word means, is the work of the people. And more specifically, in this context, what I mean is a set of formative corporate practices. It's a set of things that we do together as a people. Okay. So what's going to become important is that this is not something that narrowly focuses on a um, on what we would typically think of as a religious uh, practice. Okay. I, I would say it is religious and that all things are religious. These practices are all religious, but not in the, in the sense of kind of high church robes, organs, etc. So, um, so here, here's what I mean by that. These are formative corporate practices that we participate in together. And, uh, the way these liturgies, these cultural, cultural liturgies work is that they appeal to our desires. Okay. How do they do that? They do that because they contain an implicit story. There's a story that is carried through these practices. We make sense of the world through stories. Okay? These are oftentimes not things that we're consciously thinking about all the time. But there is some sense in which you have an answer to the question, who am I? You have the answer to the question, where am I? You have an answer to the question of what is wrong with this world? And you've got an answer to the question, what is the solution to that problem? Okay? And we live as people in these stories. Okay? And these cultural liturgies that we participate in are telling some sort of story, and they're calling us to participate in that. I've got a quote from uh, Bartholomew Goheen on this. In order to make sense of our lives and to make our most important decisions, we depend on the story that provides the broader framework of meaning for our lives. Our lives and the questions and events that fill them take their meaning from within some larger story. And then another quote from Jamie Smith, his book that was um, the follow-up to this one, Imagining the Kingdom. We need stories like we need food and water. We're built for narrative, nourished by stories, not just as distractions or diversions or entertainments, but because we constitute our world narratively. It is from stories that we receive our character, and those stories in turn become part of our background, the horizons within which we constitute our world and engage in action. I cannot answer the question, what do I love, without at least implicitly answering the question, what story do I believe? We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Um, an example of this, just to try and, and we're going to walk through this and then put it all together with an example at the end, just so you know. Um, if, for instance, you were to believe in just a, a base uh, materialist, naturalist view of the world, you have a set of answers to those four questions I mentioned. Who are we? 
Um, we are a random time plus chance plus matter. We've evolved into something. What's, the, what's wrong or where are we? We're in a world that, that came together um, randomly without any purpose. It just happened. Big bang sort of thing. Um, what's wrong with the world? Well, that, that's kind of hard to answer. Do you feel like something's wrong with the world? That's something that you have that, that you might dislike or something that you like. But there's no capital E evil or huge problem. And then the solution might be, well, wh- how do we do we even need to try and resolve that problem? Um, and it could be just go ahead and, and do whatever feels good to increase what you like and do away with what you dislike. So th- that, that's everybody has some sort of story by which they're living that answers those questions. And there are liturgies and practices that we participate in in this world that reinforce those stories. Does that make sense? Any questions on this? Okay, here's how these work, okay? We have this story in which we're participating in, but they contain in them, and this is where it appeals to our desires, they contain in them a vision of the good life, okay? They contain a vision of a good life. They appeal to something that we desire or love, and these things are not often articulated, okay? They, they, they are given as something to capture our imagination, some way of life that is more appealing than anything else. And so we move towards whatever that vision of the good life is. OK, um, uh, another quote from Design the Kingdom here. In other words, what we what we love is a specific vision of the good life, an implicit picture of what we think human flourishing looks like. So this would include things like what are relationships supposed to look like? What is good work? all about how is the economy supposed to work how are we to relate to the world the created world around us Um, what is a family supposed to look like how are romantic relationships supposed to uh, to be Um, so there's a vision of the good life that we all are moving towards in some way again think back to the super bowl last weekend and the commercials that you saw they are not appealing to some sort of rational uh, thought process there. They are giving you a vision of the good life through some images, whether it's owning this truck that's going to make all the difference, kind of the man's man sort of view of life. Um, or that, that if, you, uh, if you perfect yourself and become more physically beautiful and attractive, then that is the pinnacle of the good life and really what we're, what we're moving towards. Okay? All those things are, uh, they're, they're offering a vision of the good life that sucks you in and appeals to your love. And we oftentimes totally subconsciously begin working towards that. We move towards that because it appeals to our desires. Another quote from Jamie Smith there, the telos, which is just the word for end, the end to which our love is aimed is not a list of ideas or propositions or doctrines. It's not a list of abstract disembodied concepts or values. Rather, the reason this vision of the good life moves us is because it is more affective, sensible, and even even aesthetic picture of what the good life looks like. A vision of the good life captures our hearts and imaginations, not by providing a set of rules or ideas, but by painting a picture of what it looks like for us to flourish and live well. What are some other visions of the good life that are pretty prominent for us and in our world? Visions of the good life. Comfort, yes, 
huge. Security. Yeah, yeah, security. What else? Oh, just a pursuit of happiness, even. Just a, an emotional well-being where we're happy and our, our desires are, are satisfied. What else? Other visions of the good life. Success. Success, yeah. Uh, yeah, probably monetary success. <laughs> Acquisition of, of money, wealth, and goods. Yeah, good. Physical fitness and then uh, added on to that, certainly physical beauty. Yeah. Fame. Yeah, fame and recognition. Um, how about uh, the uh, retired recreational work-free life? The, uh, the ongoing three-day weekend, perpetual weekend? Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it's really interesting if you start thinking about what are these these visions of the good life, these images, these pictures that are painted of what it can look like as as a uh, as what the real what the good life is and what you're moving towards. And what's incredible about this is that so many of these things are not conscious things that we are aware of all the time. These are these are visions that are implicit in ads that we see in in uh, in the world in which we live that we just move towards because we it stirs up a desire and a love within us. And so for that reason, these things aren't neutral. I mean, they, they want us to become certain kinds of people. That's all these these this vision of the good life contains a uh, sort of a prescriptive statement about what you should be as a person, who you should be as a person and what you should do. <coughs> Another quote from Jamie Smith. Thus, we become certain kinds of people. We begin to emulate, mimic, and mirror the particular vision that we desire. Attracted by it and moved toward it, we begin to live into this vision of the good life and start to look like citizens who inhabit the world that we picture as the good life. Uh, another big one might be the American dream um, that's maybe not quite as articulated anymore, but that you would own a house that you have uh, some stability you've got uh, you've got a good job you've got the family the whole thing uh, final point here on this front is that these cultural liturgies are reinforced or carried by a set of practices there are things that we do that that reinforce this vision of the good life things that are moving us towards this that again, uh, continue to appeal to our uh, loves and train our loves and direct them and pull them towards this vision of the good life. Um, our loves are reinforced in that way. So a uh, couple quotes there. Ultimate love desire is shaped by practices, not ideas that are merely communicated to us. We are what we love and our love is shaped, primed, and aimed by liturgical practices that take hold of our gut and aim our heart to certain ends. Um, you can think about this uh, just in the context of a uh, of a relationship, a love relationship between two people. There are certain embodied practices that you would participate in. You probably wouldn't want to say it that way because that's not very loving or warm or affectionate. Um, but that would both express your love for a person, but would also form or direct or aim that love. 
Uh, an example of this, uh, you kiss your spouse, you hug your spouse. That's an expression of your love for that person. But it's also a way in which your love for that person is furthered and advanced and cultivated. So there are these practices that would express that sort of love and affection, but that also would advance it and move it along, form it and shape it. And it's like that. I mean, you can the examples here are all over the place that we could go to. But that that's that that is being reinforced in these practices. So we don't have to be aware of them to participate in them. In fact, most of the time we're not. Um, okay, final uh, final point here. Cultural liturgies extend well beyond what we usually term as religious. I already mentioned this. This these things are not um, just in the kind of if there's a sacred secular division. These are not squarely in the sacred realm by any means. These are everywhere. They're all over. Okay, let me try and give an example to pull this together. This is the example that Jamie Smith gives. It's the liturgy of the shopping mall. Okay, and he opens the book without describing what or without saying what he's describing but he he talks about pulling up into this large parking lot finding your parking place making your way through all these cars with all these people into a building that that uh that is huge has the atrium thing going um goes in and you you enter into what looks like a sanctuary that have very recognizable symbols on the walls be brands. You see a Nike swoosh. You see Williams and Sonoma. You see the brands and things that you recognize. These symbols as you walk in. Um, there's a set. There's a defined way of thinking about time when you're in the shopping mall. They close you off to what's happening outside so that you are focused in on these stores and the consumption of products around you. Okay. Um, you, you then in, engage in these actions or these practices that go along with this. You're looking, you're buying, you're eating together. And so think through some of these things. What is the vision of a good life, of the good life being put forward in general by a shopping mall? Money. Money. And maybe even what well, money might even be a means to an end in that. That would be kind of the... Yeah, yeah, uh, that you could purchase something and you could come to this kind of comfortable, um, beautiful life with lots of stuff, right? And that that's going to, uh, that that is the vision of the good life. That will satisfy. The forms of evangelism would be the marketing and the billboards that have pictures of beautiful people having lots of fun, doing the things that we want to do and being the kinds of people we want to be. Um, there's an implicit notion of sin there, which is not being beautiful, wealthy, happy in all these ways. There's an offer of salvation from that notion of sin, which is by buying these things. If you buy these things, then you'll be these people. Um, you'll have this sort of life. Um, and of course, none of that, none of that is articulated in any way. But it's appealing to our desires. It's appealing to our loves. It's showing forth this image of the good life that we can desire above all else and something that we then move towards. So what he says then, this is helpful, I think. Thus, our cultural criticism should not be asking what ideas or beliefs are being uh, bandied about in our culture. Rather, we should we should be discerning to what ends all sorts of cultural institutions are seeking to direct our love. In short, we only adequately read our culture to the extent that we recognize operative there 
an array of liturgies that function as pedagogies of desire, teachers or trainers of desire. Okay, we just need to see that this is happening all the time, everywhere. We participate in these liturgies without thinking about them most of the time, and they are having an impact on us. They are drawing us towards some sort of vision of the good life, and that story, whatever it is, is being carried along by a set of practices. Okay? There's a lot to explain up front, uh, but here's why. This has everything to do with worship. Point three here. Christian worship, then, is the participation in a counter-formative liturgy that re-aims, reshapes, retrains our loves through a set of embodied practices. Okay? A couple things here. One, worship is expressive. This is probably the way we think about worship most of the time. Us offering praise to God. Us offering worship, expressing the love and the desire that we have for God and for his kingdom. Right? A couple of uh, psalms on there. Obviously, we could look all over for this. And that is a huge part of worship. But that's probably most of the time the, 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 uh, where it stops for us in terms of what worship is. That it's just something expressive. What I want to say this morning, though, is that worship is also formative. It's also formative. And, and, and I'd say, point this out as well. All Christian worship has some sort of liturgy to their worship. It's not just those who have robes, uh, organs, and responsive readings. Everybody has an order by which they would do something, a set of corporate practices that we participate in together. Even if that's come in, sing five songs, have a prayer, have a 30-minute sermon, and then sing one song and leave. That's still a liturgy. That's still a set of practices that we're participating in. Um, and here's the significance of this. This is from Mike Cosper's really good book, Rhythms of Grace, that I recommend as well. Um, he says this, How we gather shapes who we are and what we believe, both explicitly through the actual content of songs, prayers, and sermons, and implicitly through the cultural ethos and personas. And so he goes on to say, For better or worse, our worship, regardless of our tradition or musical style or culture, is shaping the hearts and minds of our congregations. We are always teaching, shaping, and painting a picture of what the Christian life looks like. Okay, so three things we'll talk about here. The story of Christian worship, the, the, the picture of the good life in Christian worship, and then the practices of Christian worship to see how this uh, forms us as well serves as something that, that is counterformative to the ways that we're being shaped at all other times. So the story of Christian worship most generally is the gospel. That, that is what we're doing, um, and that's why we do what we do in our liturgy and worship, is that it walks us through the story of the gospel. This is, a, this is the way it was in the Old Testament um, with a covenant renewal ceremony. You jot down Joshua 24, you could go back and look at that. Cosper says this, Israel was a story-formed community and their gatherings were punctuated by remembering God's story and their place within it. Where the church's worship is centered on the, on the cross and resurrection, Israel's story centered on their own rescue, the Exodus. So then, of course, New Testament, our story is centered and focused on Jesus' death and resurrection. And it walks us through this liturgy. And so here's what Cosper points out here. Brian Chappell's got a great book on this as well that says the same thing. 
says, if you look at almost any historical worship service or worship order, you'll find that all basically engage in the same dialogue. They rehearse the gospel story. Plenty of variation and degrees of clarity, but the dialogue is generally the same. God is holy. We are sinners. Jesus saves us from our sins. We gather, remember, we gather, remember our identity shaping story and send one another back into the wider world allowing that story to shape us as we go. So if you look on your sheet there, I've got a little chart. This is uh, almost exactly from Cosper's book. Where he speaks of how we would experience the gospel in that left-hand column, how those experiences then would map onto the remembering the story and seeing our place within the story, and then how that maps onto our actions in the liturgy, what we do. Um, so you see, God is holy, which corresponds to God as creator, and then actions and liturgy comes forth as something that we, uh, in our adoration. Uh, we're sinners, part of the story is the fall, and then we have confession or lament. Uh, Jesus saves us, we're in the portion of redemption in the story. You see multiple actions in that uh, that reflect that redemption. And then Jesus sends us, uh, the consummation of that story. And then the actions and the liturgy. Okay, so that is the basic story. It is the gospel that we're working through. So then what is the biblical vision of the good life and human flourishing in in Christian worship? We could say it this way, that humans are then in a restored, right, whole relationship with God, with each other, and with the world around us. Okay? That is the vision of the good life that's articulated in various ways within the scriptures. We won't read all these, but I tried to give you a list of them. Um, The kingdom of God is described in that way. Uh, It's described as the new heavens and the new earth. Got great passages there from Revelation 21. You can look up Isaiah 65 as well. It's described as the marriage of Jesus and his bride. This consummation of a marriage. Uh, And then it's described as a feast or a banquet. Uh, Another passage from Isaiah 25 that we looked at earlier. Here's a way this uh, could be described. Um, That of shalom, which is just this Hebrew word, usually translated peace, but really means something more like wholeness, things as they were meant to be. Here's a great description of that word from uh, Cornelius Plantiga. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So this is the vision of the good life. It is Jesus reigning as king. It is Jesus having made all things new. It is Jesus completing his work of redemption and seeing the fullness of that in all parts of the world. So that's the vision of the good life. That's what we are created for. That's the human flourishing towards which we are are moving. And so that's contained in our worship service. And then this vision of the good life, the story that culminates in this vision of the good life is carried in practices. It's reinforced in practices. So uh, take a look at your sheet and we'll look at each of these elements briefly to see how this happens. And this is really answering the question, how can your loves be reordered and redirected? How do you train your loves? Um, And the answer to that, one of the answers to that is by participating in corporate worship. 
This is a way in which the Spirit renews us and reorders our loves and desires. Um, so we'll look briefly here at each element. By the way, I'm not going to say anything about uh, music and hymns here because Jacob's going to deal with that next week. But in general, a couple comments up front. One, you'll notice that throughout our worship service, we have a lot of scripture um, in all parts. And what's significant about that in terms of how that would form us is that this actually gives us the vocabulary of the kingdom. Um, it teaches us how to speak, even in, in, uh, in the ways that we would uh, confess our sins, the, ways that, the words that we would take uh, into our mouths as we are praising God. The doxology, all of these things are teaching us the language of the kingdom and are coming from the word of God. Um, another quick point up front in general is to recognize the significance of us speaking together in unison. Um, there's sometimes I try to avoid this, but there's kind of the awkward uh, cadence of trying to confess our sins together or do some sort of reading together. You kind of want the guy up front to like make this a little easier on you in some way. And we don't know where to break and we have to wait for one another sometimes. And it can be a little, little uncertain. There's actually something really wonderful about that. That's us having to wait on one another. That's recognizing that this isn't just about me and God. There's a corporate dynamic here. And these people are my family and are a part of this as well. And so even that speaking together is teaching us something. I'll move through these uh, pretty quickly here. Call to worship. So we begin then with God as creator. He makes us in his image to worship him. What does this teach us? How does this form us? It, it reminds us that God is always the one who initiates with us. He speaks first. Our entire lives, our gathering together in our entire lives is really in response to his gracious work in our lives. So we're formed in that way. Another way, uh, another thing that this does is, uh, and this is how Jamie Smith puts it, that the call to worship is an invitation to be human. And what he means by that is that we're being invited to do that which you were created for, to worship the creator God. So God calls us to worship, adoration and praise. We then respond to God in adoration and praise. A couple things that are happening here. One, it's to remind us that God is the focus and we are not. God is the focus and we are not. Another significant thing that happens, though, is that as we exalt and praise God or say yes to him by our words, we are implicitly saying no to other idols. As we worship him, we're saying yes to him. We're saying no to the temptations and other places in which and through which we could seek to satisfy our desires. So even there, we're saying something and we're being formed and shaped. The invocation, we're inviting the triune God to dwell with us. We're reminded that God is relationship and that he welcomes us into that relationship and we're asking him to dwell with us. The doxology is same as the adoration and praise. And then confession of sin or lament. Um, the confession of sin is probably pretty obvious here. But just think for a moment how countercultural it is to stop and acknowledge your guilt, your shame, and your sin. To stop pretending that, you, that those things aren't true about you. To stop wearing a mask that, you, that we wear all the time in all of our relationships. 
and to actually acknowledge those things about our hearts that we don't want that we don't always want to. That that is profoundly countercultural. That is something that we don't do in any other parts of our lives. And so that that's formative upon us. That's bringing us in touch with reality is what it's doing. Uh, and at the same time, it magnifies the love and the mercy of God in Jesus as we confess our sin. Also, confession of lament. Um, this is a recognition that not only are we sinners, but that we are also sinned against. We are sinners and we're sufferers. That the world itself is not the way it's supposed to be. And we acknowledge that. We live in a broken world. And as we confess this in lament, um, you think back to our sermon series in Advent, we say things about the world that are true. Uh, and that, that helps us um, in, in saying we don't need to downplay the pain and sorrow of death. We don't need to try and move through the world as though pain and suffering is not real. This is saying, no, these things are real. Um, and it, it tells us that suffering isn't meaningless. It also tells us that suffering isn't forever. So confession of sin and lament, assurance of pardon. God reminds us and assures us of the certainty of our forgiveness in Jesus. This is true assurance after a true recognition of our guilt. Um, huge implications there that, that God's favor rests upon us who have trusted in Jesus. And that's an absolute certainty. Um, passing of the peace. We don't do this, although we may eventually do this. Um, this is the natural result of the gospel, um, that we are also reconciled to one another. So this is a part of a lot of worship services where um, you greet one another with the peace of Christ. You give handshakes, hugs, um, express, express affection towards one another. What does this do? It shows in microcosm what restored relationships in the world look like. It reinforces that we as a church are a family. Um, so hugely important. And we show hospitality and welcome one another because God has done that. Baptism, I'm going to skip. We're, we'll talk about when we talk about scap, uh, sacraments. Offering. Um, we A couple things happening here. that Our, our sacrificial giving is connected to the sacrificial giving of Jesus, uh, giving his own life. What happens here is that we are released from the idolatry of money as we participate in this practice of giving away something. We're released from this idolatry of money where we recognize that God owns all things. And we're also released from this idolatry of control over our lives. Um, he is Lord over all things. We can trust him and that we give this back. So offering pastoral prayer, um, usually a thanksgiving and petition. This emphasizes that we can approach God as father, that he hears us, that he answers us, um, and that we, we learn that our lives come from him. There's nothing that we can't ask for from him. All this is being shaped in us. And then we, we also in this learn the language of the kingdom. Reading and preaching the word. Um, Jesus is proclaimed. The gospel is central. The story of the world is told. This is explained. This might be one of the most obvious ways that we could see ourselves formed. Um, and we'll talk about this in the next couple of weeks. Lord's Supper. Jesus invites us to his table to feast with him. We remember his death there. I mean, this is just like all over the place in terms of how formative this is. Uh, Paul says we proclaim the gospel as we celebrate the supper. Um, it, this serves as a foretaste of the renewal of all things. Foretaste of the coming kingdom. Um, it manifests our unity as a body 
And even the physicality, that it's real bread and real wine, actually shows that the world matters to God. There's a created, uh, a newly created, a recreated new heavens and the new earth that we'll participate in. And that emphasizes that. Finally, sending and blessing. This is so important too. The end result of worship is always that we would be a part of his mission in the world. And he sends us to that end. That's that, the portion at the end of our worship service right now that's from Colossians 3, where God sends us into the world and he empowers us for that mission by giving us his spirit. So we participate in his work in the world in that way. And that's always the end of worship, that we would go out in the world. And he blesses us in doing that as well, that we go out as children, not as orphans. We go out with his fatherly favor upon us and we go out as his ambassadors in all the world. So here's where this is all headed from Cosper. Rehearse regularly. The gospel becomes part of our way of thinking, seeing, feeling, loving, and being in the world. It's a weekly heartbeat gathering us in and scattering us back out to our homes and workplaces, to children's soccer games and board meetings, to chemotherapy sessions and evenings around the dinner table. From there, we return to the gathered church, once again rehearsing the story, remembering who God has made us, singing and celebrating that identity. Liturgy that immerses the people of God in the rhythms of grace doesn't merely train them for gospel-centered worship. It trains them for gospel-centered lives. So corporate worship is central to our formation as a people. Um, The big picture application is give yourself to that. Give yourself to every part of what we do on a Sunday morning. Because Jesus, by his spirit, is making you and making us more like him as we do that together. Um, I'll give you those questions for reflection that you can look at this week and recommend those two books to you. Let me pray for us.